Hi, and welcome to another episode of the ULI Toronto Electric Cities podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. six months since our lives have been upended by COVID-19. And while some people have more or less managed to maintain their way of life through continued job security and financial stability, many others in our city region have suffered the consequences of lost employment and an uncertain path to recovery. With soaring unemployment rates, the demand for affordable housing has never been greater. Fortunately, governments of all levels are stepping up their efforts to respond. And in the midst of it all lies the various not-for-profit housing agencies driven to support individuals and families in need of decent and affordable housing. One of Toronto's best-known not-for-profit housing agencies is Habitat for Humanity, and during these difficult times, their efforts are more critical than ever. To understand more about Habitat for Humanity and how it is responding to the impacts of this global crisis, I'm really fortunate to be joined by Ian Underwood, the CEO for Habitat for Humanity GTA. So, Ian, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it's fantastic to be here, particularly uh, because it's World Habitat Day. Yeah, it's going to be. We're, we're recording this on, on uh, October 1st, but we plan on releasing it on, on October 5th, uh, World Habitat Day. And I understand this is the day to reflect on the state of our towns and cities and the basic right for adequate shelter for all. So why don't we start off by having you talk about the importance of World Habitat Day and, and how it ties into what Habitat for Humanity is all about. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Um, World Habitat Day was established in uh, 35 years ago, so 1985, established by the United Nations, um, uh, somewhat in concert uh, or following on the recognition by the United Nations of housing as a, a fundamental human right. And as you said uh, earlier, it's really a day um, uh, to challenge us all to reflect on the state of our cities, how we're doing on adequate shelter for, for all of our citizens, uh, and what we ourselves can do uh, about that. And I think, you know, all of us can agree a lot has happened since World Habitat Day 2019. And I would, I would assert that this World Habitat Day is probably the most important we've ever had. You know, with a global pandemic underway, so many of us are doing what you and I are doing today. We're, you know, sheltering at home. We have a safe, decent place to live. We can shelter here. We can quarantine. We can work. Uh, we can homeschool our children. Um, that's not the reality for, you know, thousands and thousands of people here in the GTA. And, you know, in, in parallel, this has been a year where there's been the, the anti-Black systemic racism movement that has called us, caused us to say maybe Canada isn't what we thought it was. Uh, and we're seeing the dots connect between uh, the COVID pandemic and the systemic racism in our society. And we're seeing those dots connect to, you know, headlines and statistics about how, how our uh, racialized and vulnerable populations are doing. And the answer is not well enough. And so World Habitat Day is, is a time to say, to understand, to look at that and say, what can we do about that? So what has the UN, you know, with this day that, that 
comes about every October 5th. What what does the UN do? I mean, is it basically just an announcement to, to, to get people to reflect, or is there, is there, are there more action items that are out there? For the most part, it's an announcement, and then it's really taken locally to to say, okay, what does that mean to us locally? And so, you know, for us in Toronto, the Globe did a report back in July that said, if you think of COVID, 50% of COVID cases are happening in households of uh, $50,000 uh, uh, incomes or less. Uh, and, you know, black members of the community have a six times greater likelihood of uh, having COVID than white people. And, you know, so that's part of our local reality. And uh, a lot of that comes back to just uh, the housing situation uh, of lower income households, as well as of a large majority of black households. Um, when you're in a high-rise building with poor ventilation and you have a, uh, a, a disease that thrives on, that's airborne, um, that's a problem. And when you're in crowded housing situations, which are true, which are the case for most of low-income households, you, know, you can't quarantine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't protect other members of your family. When you are, have the choice between being on a crowded elevator or waiting for another 45 minutes and you have a crying child, you're probably going to get on the crowded elevator. And so those are choices that uh, lower income households in this city are making every day um, in the midst of a, of a pandemic. Hmm. So what then, h- how does... Habitat for Humanity GTA. Uh, what what have you seen in, in terms of your response to all this? And or, or maybe let's back back up a little bit. Maybe you can describe a little bit about what Habitat uh, for Humanity does, and, and then how it's responded, particularly in, in this uh, in this time of crisis. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, so you know, the same as World Habitat Day is a kind of global um, uh, uh, movement. Uh, so, too, Habitat for Humanity, as I think most people recognize, is a global charity. And so I'll start there. You know, it, it started over 40 decades ago. It actually started in the uh, racial divide, racially divided deep south of the U.S. Um, uh, based on a um, based on kind of principles of equality and social justice and a belief that giving a hand up to working lower income families in enabling them to become homeowners would not only put a roof over their head, but would, but also that that stability and the opportunity of building equity in their home would provide an avenue for multi-generational uh, advancement. So enabling them to really break the cycle of poverty. Uh, uh, and, you know, fast forward to today, um, Habitat Worldwide has made that uh, vision possible for over 600,000 uh, households. Uh, and together with kind of uh, disaster relief work, uh, they've provided shel- we've provided shelter for 6.8 million people worldwide. Uh, more locally, my life as CEO here uh, at Habitat GTA is uh, we work to um, transact that mission for working lower income families uh, here in the areas that we serve, uh, which in our case is uh, Brampton, Caledon, Toronto, York region and uh, in Durham region. And um, the way uh, it, it's, someone has said to me recently that, you know, Habitat for Humanity is well known but not known well. Uh, 
And I, I'm conscious of that. I think everyone, we all have the image of, you know, volunteers swinging hammers, helping build homes. Um, but I'll admit for myself, you know, eight years ago before I was CEO of Habitat for Humanity, I couldn't quite, it seemed like an oxymoron, quite honestly, to think that you could have a charity helping lower income households become homeowners yeah. in, in this crazy, you know, GTA uh, real estate environment, which is, you know, even more, much more challenging than it was when I first came in. Sure. And, you know, so as I said earlier, the reason for doing it is this, is this view that, you know, rental alone, you know, provides the stability of a roof over your head and adequate housing. But what it can't do as much is provide that base on which to, you know, build equity and uh, and and create multi generational change. So, so do you want me to talk a bit about how do we pull it off? Like, how do we enable? Well, sure. Um, I think that that's a that's a big question, especially in in the context like the Toronto real estate market where home prices are just soaring through the roof, so to speak. And, you know, how, how is it that Habitat for Humanity is able to find an, find opportunities for lower income individuals and families to, to actually um, uh, get some foundation and, and develop that equity when they're faced with a very aggressive home buyer's market? Yeah. Yeah. So let me, there's two sides of the coin, of course. How do we make it work for the, the homeowner? And then how do we pay for it ourselves? So let me first start with the homeowner. So essentially the way we're making home ownership work is by partnering with them to, you know, to build homes, and, but then facilitate an affordable mortgage. Uh, and the way that affordable mortgage works is it's a zero down payment mortgage because the households we're working with are at income levels where they're paying rent, they're getting food on the table, but they don't have capacity to put money away for a down payment or investments or anything else. So we're a zero down payment program. The mortgage itself is structured so that the combination of the mortgage and the property tax and the condo fees uh, will never exceed 32% of the household income. So uh, as household income goes up over time, their mortgage payments go up. And if they have a period of time where it goes down, then we flex the mortgage down. Um, we also provide kind of financial literacy and preparation for home ownership because all of our homeowners are first-time homeowners. So we put we really invest a lot of attention to um, family selection as well as then preparing families to be successful as, as homeowners. Um, and I think as you're aware, you know, that this partnership component in return for this affordable mortgage, we make possible families agree to uh, provide 500 hours of their own time as volunteers um, helping to build or in our stores or elsewhere. And they, and as part of that, they also uh, often will agree to serve as ambassadors and spokespeople for the nature of our work. Um, and maybe Maybe before I move on to, um, you know, how, how we uh, uh, how we do it financially, uh, I can just give you an example of a couple families. So, you know, wh when I first arrived, I heard about Gabby and Gabby uh, was one of the first homeowners in Toronto. So long before I arrived, she, she became a homeowner. She was a single mom uh, with a son. Uh, and I heard about Gabby because her son at the age of, I think he was then 30, had just had his first child and had himself been able to go and buy a home on the market. And, and that's again, 
and that's the nature. And and Gabby, you know, was very clear about well, that would never have happened, you know, if if she had not herself been able to get that toehold, you know, and to build some equity and be able to support him through his education that then led to him being in a position to buy on the market. So there's you know there's one example. Um, another example would be um, uh, a family uh, mom and dad. Dad's name is Nasser, and they came you know to Canada a number of years before they found us, they um, were raising uh, their uh, three very young sons in a one-bedroom apartment because that was all their income could cover. So you've got mom, dad, and three very noisy, lovable um, uh, sons, one bedroom. Um, and they, uh, it's our partnership with the Daniels Corporation, which we can talk about uh, later, our developer partnerships, you know, moved into a Habitat home, but in a, a community built by the Daniels Corporation. And Nasser talked to us after moving in and talked about how until he was in his new home, he had no bandwidth left to really focus on how does he grow and restart his career from when he, where he left off before he came to Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, just coming home to this noisy house, you know, noisy crowded house and trying to keep food on the table and paying more than 30% income for shelter, he just couldn't do it. And then after moving in, he was able to start doing night courses and really invest in upgrading so he could move his career forward um, and uh, and continue to better support his family. So what... So that gives... Sorry, but sure, I'm just ahead. curious. What what are the criteria for selecting um, uh, future uh, home buyers through your program? Uh, you know, there yeah. must be certain thresholds that that they have to yeah. meet. Yeah. So the um, so uh, uh, there's there is an income threshold. So uh, and that's based on incomes not being so low uh, that by the time they pay their property taxes and condo fees, they won't be gaining any equity. So there's uh, there's an income threshold of a low end and a high end. Um, uh, then there's need. So we you know families go through quite a, a significant application process, and we kind of assess through um, visits to their home, etc. That the need is there in terms of they're living in unaffordable or crowded or unhealthy, unsafe living conditions. And then there's other considerations like checking their debt levels. Um, they have to be Canadian citizens or permanent um, uh, residents. Uh, and they have to have um, uh, at least a couple years of, of continuous uh, employment income here in Canada. And then the other part, as I said, is they have to be willing to partner. So not every family is up for saying somehow on top of, you know, uh, juggling often a couple part-time jobs, you know, and raising their kids and commuting by transit that somehow they can still find 500 hours um, to volunteer because of their, you know, conviction about how much uh, of a difference home ownership will make for them. How, how are you funded? What's your source of revenue to, to um, provide that kind of service? So Habitat is a social enterprise, which means we are using kind of business principles to do good. So the first part of our uh, revenue comes from the families. 
So because we're a home ownership models, model, uh, we have income from those family mortgages. So that's, that is one part of our funding. Uh, uh, second part, I think everyone recognizes we're a charity. We work very hard um, at uh, appealing to um, businesses and uh, philanthropists uh, to, to, uh, to contribute to our work uh, because the mortgage, the whole point is the mortgages alone are not sufficient to be able to buy homes uh, in this city. Uh, the third factor of how we pay for them is we also work very hard with governments uh, around uh, getting concessions on land, uh, on uh, having at least def deferring development charges. Um, uh, um, and sometimes we're able to get government grants. So the home building itself is a combination of those three things, the mortgage, the philanthropy, the grants. Then um, you may be aware we run um, uh, restores. So we have uh, 12 restores across the GTA who are selling uh, donated um, uh, home renovation of products, home appliances, uh, home furniture. Um, and those restores are generating income, which we use to pay our salaries and to help us build homes. So that's the kind of range of streams that we use. So what makes us quite different than mo than many charities and certainly than uh, than you know publicly funded uh, organizations like our hospitals is we're not getting operating income uh, for what we do from government. We are kind of self-generating uh, that income. Very interesting. And I, I, actually, you mentioned the restore. I, I we did a renovation recently. We did. Um we did uh, donate some some appliances, and it was it was lovely just to see them pick it up and turn that into a, a charitable donation. Um, as far as the the, the where the, the the homes are located that you're building or that that are now um, uh, lived in, how how do you go about acquiring sites um, for future for future development? So again, it's a combination. So as you can imagine, so we do buy some uh, uh, market sites. As you can imagine, the sites that Habitat goes after are the ones no one else wants. And that's also an oxymoron because everyone now, uh, like land is so scarce in the GTA yeah. um, that, uh, that sourcing the land is indeed very difficult. And yet we do still um, buy some market, market land. Um, we also uh, have uh, some of our sites have come through relationships with uh, municipalities uh, and sometimes in partnerships with, uh, with developers. And then, and, and this might be a good place where I should talk a bit about our, our, our range of developer partnerships. Um, uh, so we have, um, I mentioned, let me actually start with the Daniels Corporation that I mentioned at the outset. That's our longest developer relationship. And Daniels have really been pace setters. They've had a you know, vision, and I think since their inception, that around the importance of inclusive communities. And so um, what they have done with us recently is when they are building um, a community, uh, they offer to us a minimum of one unit uh, in that community, which we purchase at below their cost. Uh, and then we make it available through the same model uh, as we do through our volunteer built homes. Um, and again, because we have the mortgages from the, from the families, that's one of the elements that enables us to um, be able to 
um, purchase these homes. Um, it doesn't cover, it definitely doesn't cover all of it, but it covers part of it. So there's one aspect of a partnership. The, the a second example I'll give you is 20 units that we'll start to build uh, uh, in 2021 on land that was surplus city of Toronto land originally way back in 2010 earmarked for Habitat for Humanity. But when uh, the investigation started on the land, it became clear that the complexity of the site, it's a brownfield site, and the complexity of the site were such that we uh, uh, could not do that on our own. And we couldn't, and it, it wasn't affordable to do the brownfield work and just build townhomes on it. Uh, and so um, that went ultimately became a solution um, uh, between the city, Create TO, and Habitat that led to Diamond Kilmer uh, being the partner on that land. And so Diamond Kilmer took the lead on the site development, is going to be developing a new, uh, two, I think it's 272-unit community. This is in the Stockyards area. Um, and in that community, it's a mix of um, uh, some mid-rise and some towns. Uh, and uh, we will be build, building a block of 20 stacked back-to-back -to -back towns that look the same as the back-to-back -to -back towns that Diamond Kilmer is delivering. And so that the value of that land was vended in to the deal uh, that Habitat is not paying any of the land. We will pay Diamond Kilmer our share of the site servicing, but we get the benefit of their expertise on that development uh, part and the site servicing. That's a um, really great. Um, it's a terrific story, actually. And it, it's a great you know, and story. Kilmer Diamond Kilmer is is certainly one of the lead um, developers in terms of brownfield uh, development. Elements. How has it been for them? I mean, you mentioned Daniels Corporation, and certainly, you know, one of their uh, foundational values is to, as you mentioned, create opportunities for more complete communities. But how, how has it been for working with Diamond Kilmer? Is, was this sort of a, a new um, new avenue for them to, to create opportunities for below market value uh, housing? Uh, yes and no. Um, on the through the through the diamond side, diamond also uh, had initiated a section 37 approach uh, to working with Habitat a number of years ago, and that's another property that now is is coming into play. Uh, and uh, and I can come back to that in a second. And Diamond Kilmer and Daniels are actually all together uh, on another partnership with us in what used to be the old Humber River Hospital site. So they were the successful proponent. I'll go to that one next. They were the successful proponents on that uh, on that site. Um, and as part of that development with the Section 37 deal with the city, of course, there's some parkland, there's some streetscaping, uh, but also there is some affordable housing. So there are, I believe, three units of affordable housing uh, in uh, mid-rise that will be transferred to uh, Habitat uh, within the next couple of years once they're built. Um, so, uh, and then the other Section 37 that I mentioned that Diamond was involved in is with a, um, a high-rise uh, condo building that they uh, that is being developed uh, in the Sherburne and Wellesley area. Uh, and so that's a, a Section 37 deal that is seeing eight units uh, come to us. And I believe in that case, um, uh, that's a we purchase them well below cost. Um, uh, and then we also, you know, we have a couple other um, 
partnerships with with other developers uh, that fall into the density bonusing category. So, you know, two different situations with two different developers where they were in a position where they really felt that there was merit in um, a, a greater density. And so conversations involving the developer us, local councillor, city, resulted in the developer um, uh, uh, augmenting their site plan with a bit more density uh, in exchange for units coming to Habitat. And, you know, and so this starts getting into the inclusionary zoning discussion, you know, that is very much in play now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also the new, the, the new community benefits charges, you know, that has now, you know, really just been finalized at the provincial level. And I'll, I'll stay with community benefits charges for a second, because while those can apply to many things, the province was very intentional in number one, exempting uh, nonprofits like Habitat from paying community benefits charges because we are a community benefit, but also including on the list of uh, services that could be treated as a community benefit, including affordable housing. So, so it means when a developer is looking at a big community benefits charge, they can come to us and say, you know, can we work together with the city to say maybe the right answer here in community benefits is there should be, you know, four um, habitat units in this building, in the, you know, high rise or in a new townhouse complex. Well, lots of um, lots of talk on on the planning front, and that that sort of brings me to my next question, which is the term one of the big buzzwords for planners and, and urbanists these days is the term missing middle, um, and that that sort of implies that you know there's lots of high density residential in certain pockets of our city and plenty of low density urban and suburban residential neighborhoods. But there's very little in our built environment that includes medium or, or middle density developments like duplexes, triplexes, small apartment style housing um, to really accommodate a broader variety of housing choices in in um, the city's pretty large swath of low rise residential neighborhoods and obviously a way to accommodate more affordable housing. Um, it's interesting, though, you know, in, in late August during the, uh, the Republican National Convention in, in the United States, there was a fairly bold message that, that came out that essentially suggested that ending single-family zoning in the suburbs would bring crime, lawlessness, and low-quality apartments in now-thriving suburban neighborhoods. So I, I'm kind of curious, what's your response to that kind of statement in the context um, of the notion of the missing middle and, and its opportunity for affordable housing? Yes, well, you know, at the end of the day, I think this conversation is really about privilege. Um, uh, privilege and, and privilege, which often is about luck of what year were you born uh, and what color was your, is your skin? So, you know, and, and I can speak to this personally, um, because, you know, I'm in my fifties. Uh, I bought a house in Riverdale in 1996. So you can imagine what I purchased it for and what it's worth now. That's just luck. That is just luck about when I was born. Uh, and it's luck about, you know, kind of how my career started. Um, and so the reality is I'm in one of these yellow belts where, you know, it's very hard to get this community to look anything different than what it looks now. And that, you know, in my view, is all about protecting the interests of people like me who are in their 50s mm-hmm. and not being focused on the next generation uh, and what this city will look 
look like for our, you know, for our children and our grandchildren. Um, the I think there's limited evidence to what you've just described, you know, from the Republican convention of any kind of assertion that if we, um, you know, uh, uh, put a, a combination of mixed income housing and mixed income, mixed build forms into communities, uh, that that will, uh, you know, somehow uh, um, uh, drag our communities down. And in fact, I think there's a lot of evidence that quite the opposite is true. Um, you know, certainly in communities where Habitat has built, and we build, we Habitat GTA build communities. We just built a 50-unit community, you know, up in uh, Scarborough. Uh, most of our communities are in the kind of 10 to 10 to 50 in size. Um, there's no evidence of, um, uh, certainly there's no change in, you know, in crime. If anything, there's greater community connections um, uh, that come from bringing people who are really committed to home ownership and being part of communities, et cetera. Um, and I think if you, you know, and, and most of the research supports uh, the notion of mixed income communities are always stronger, more vibrant, more creative uh, communities. Um, so I think uh, the the conversation that's underway now about the fact that you know seventy percent of the residential space in Toronto and I, I I don't know what the number is you know in the other parts of the nine hundred five but as you know it's a big number you know um, we have to be bold about how we look at that and how we change zoning and I know it's controversial but what the balance of power is between the local community to keep their community the same and between the needs of the future community. So um, certainly at Habitat GTA, we are all for the conversations around, you know, getting triplexes into neighborhoods that are, you know, zoned for only single and and detached and 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 semis, uh, and and absolutely talking about um, uh, mid-rise and you know all the stuff along our you know avenues should be you know uh, more stories and we're all, I'm personally a big proponent that as we develop our new transit hubs. We need to be really aggressive. Um, we need to be fair to homeowners that, um, you know, whose land may be expropriated as a result of new transit hubs. Um, fair and probably more than fair. But we need to be really aggressive about how much um, housing and community amenities we invest in when we have these opportunities. Yeah, I mean, it certainly requires a delicate balance, um, certainly at, at the political level, to 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 appease um, local residents, uh, those in Riverdale and other well-established neighborhoods, but also, you know, to accommodate a growing population where um, the price of, of home ownership is is increasingly out of reach for so many. Um, I want to, you know, this is, we did introduce this whole uh, episode under the umbrella of COVID. I, so I, I'm kind of curious, um, how was Habitat GTA, how, how was it doing in terms of delivering or accommodating a number of families or a number of projects just before COVID hit? And, and what were some of the impacts uh, that you've experienced uh, since the COVID pandemic has hit? Yeah, so um, we were certainly on a roll um, before the pandemic hit. And, you know, I think um, it's worth noting, you know, the, the first, probably the first, the two 
things that were on our mind immediately when the pandemic started was the families who are already Habitat homeowners who, you know, have mortgages to pay, uh, as well as our resource. So let, let me first deal with the families. Um, we, uh, part of our mortgage model is that families can ask for temporary mortgage relief if they've had some kind of situation that's putting financial stress um, on their on their household. So when the pandemic hit, we immediately reached out to the kind of 300 plus um, families who still had active mortgages with us, uh, reminding of them of let us know if you need relief. We didn't know how we were going to cover it, but we still <laughs> said let us know. Uh, initially, we had 40 families uh, out of about 306 ask for relief. Um, today, there are six. Uh, and I think that is very much a reflection of just the resilience of um, Habitat families. Um, after the 2008, um, you know, housing meltdown in the U.S., uh, Habitat families uh, experienced much lower default um, and foreclosure rates than the average in the U.S. And, you know, Canada didn't experience the same thing. But, but um, uh, similarly, um, uh, families were pretty resilient through 2009, you know, 10, 11, 12. Um, on the res- I mentioned the resource because earlier I said, you know, we don't get operating income from government. So paying all of our staff salaries is, is, is a function of our resource being open. So um, uh, shortly after COVID hit, we had to make the difficult decision of, le- of temporarily laying off uh, 90% of our staff. Um, we were uh, able to move really quickly, and this is a credit to our restore team, to um, put together a really robust e-commerce platform uh, and start, you know, getting money coming back in the door again through e-commerce. Uh, and then uh, once we got to stage two uh, in uh, in the GTA, the stores were able to open um, and we were able to bring the staff back. Um, our builds have also taken a hit. And I think that's true for many in the development community. Um, our build timelines um, certainly have been impacted by the, you know, distractions and demands of COVID on municipal municipal governments. Um, That's both our own builds and our builds and some of our developer partnership builds. And then another big impact for us um, uh, is, as people know, you know, our our builds, uh, many of our builds are fueled by volunteers and and the majority of those volunteers are coming from corporate groups um, who give us both some kind of hands and feet as well as money. And so we, you know, have had virtually no corporate uh, group activity, understandably, since mid-March. we still have where the build sites are back up and running with uh, individual volunteers working under all the same uh, COVID safety protocols as uh, exist on other um, build sites around the province, um, Habitat or otherwise. Um, but I think on silver linings, you know, every individual and every organization is discovering that there's a lot. You know, COVID is, is really challenging us to think about the next normal. You know, where do we want to be in 2022 and 2023 um, when we can look in the rearview mirror at the global pandemic? Um, in our case, uh, that means we are continuing to push hard on our conversations with developers and municipalities um, because it is the combination of our volunteer builds and developer partnerships that will enable us to deliver more solutions faster. Um, it's also pushing our thinking. The thing about volunteers and corporate groups and our build sites, we're really pushing our thinking and our conversations with donors of getting people more focused on the cause 
than on the opportunity to be on a build site swinging a hammer. Mm-hmm. Um, and just that, that there's something bigger here than just having a fun build day. Uh, and so we're really doing a lot of how do we have that conversation um, so we can attract the level of philanthropic support we need to um, be able to support the depth of affordability needs that are in our communities. Um, so those are a couple ways it's really challenging us to, uh, to think and innovate and become stronger. Well, you mentioned silver linings. You actually took the, the terminology out of my mouth, but it, it kind of, uh, you know, affordable housing is really under the spotlight now um, based on everything that's that's happening. And, and as I mentioned in the intro, you know, governments are, are seem to be stepping up. They're announcing, making some pretty bold announcements. You know, the Fed's announced um, that, that they're prepared to spend up to a billion dollars to build affordable units across the country. The city of Toronto has their COVID-19 housing and homelessness recovery response plan where they want to see a partnership with the Feds and the province and the city to create um, 3,000 homes. Um, including a thousand new modular homes. So what's your response to, to all these announcements? And, and more importantly, do you think this is just a one-time injection or do you think we've entered a new era of more robust and sustained government support for affordable housing? Hmm. I, I'm not sure on your last question. Um, I think everyone agrees it is really um, uh, encouraging to see the level of government and public attention to um, housing affordability. Um, I'll say for us uh, from our um, habitat vantage point, we also have some concerns. And so the, the concern is what it, you know, I've said earlier in our discussion, um, it's our experience and our belief that rental, a, a roof over a head um, in and of itself is not sufficient to enable um, uh, lower income uh, uh, populations move forward generation to generation. You know, the reality, and and again, this has a racial side to it. The reality today is that 69% of our lowest income community of the residents in our lowest income neighborhoods are racialized and 73% in our high income neighborhoods, which are mainly ownership, uh, are white. And so the only way we can meaningfully start to bridge that gap is if we also make sure we're creating pathways, not just having a roof over your head that you're going to keep spending all your money on for rental and never have anything left to invest, you know, or build equity. Uh, so, so our concern with the energy around housing now is we're not sure if it's, if it's as far sighted as it needs to be. Um, that, uh, you know, those of us who have done well with ownership kind of take it for granted and need to keep paying attention to, uh, we will be successful in having a sustainable, affordable housing strategy uh, if we have a full continuum of supports to help the woman who's homelessness, yeah, homeless um, uh, be able to get into a shelter, be able to move from that shelter to a solid rental environment uh, and be able to eventually aspire to an environment where she can build equity and stability for her family. But don't you think that the, the governments, you know, the announcement they, they've made and all of the attention to, um, to trying to correct the social injustices that we're seeing in the world, that that is, is, is only going to be a conversation that's going to grow over time? 
time. Uh, and that all that will help support that this this broader conversation of ensuring that that everyone has a roof over their head, uh, a decent uh, decent housing, and is is given the opportunity to um, to get some equity in in home ownership. Yeah, well, it's, when you work in the world that I work in, you are always hopeful and always optimistic. So, uh, yes, I believe we're in a really important moment in time in 2020. And I think it's causing us to ask different questions. Um, and and it certainly is my hope that over time, um, uh, as, as everyone is listening and paying a bit of attention, that 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 this whole spectrum will be covered. Um, what I do know is I've gotten involved um, with the the Black North Housing Committee, which is you know looking at anti anti Black systemic racism as it relates to housing, part of the broader Black North initiative. And the Black members of that committee um, talk about the importance of ownership as being a base for then being able to build income through a growing career, be able to build broader institutional and personal networks which in turn support a career, which in turn supports being able to help the next generation, um, both through the career and the wealth and the networks. And so uh, so it's going to take some really intentional um, effort to be able to address the size of the divides we have right now in who lives where, um, whose incomes are what, and what are the cert- what what are the pathways we'll need to create to make sure that the all of these great investments we're making today uh, don't just uh, leave us with um, a lot of housing that we're now having to maintain and nobody is moving because they can't afford to move. It's so interesting to see how Habitat for Humanity and I guess Habitat for GTA. Um, by extension, you know, in the early days, uh, what uh, I guess what thirty years ago is that? That's how long Habitat's been around, or, or no, forty. Yeah, a little over forty. Forty, now. sorry, yeah, forty years. Forty. Where 30 they for us, but a little over forty worldwide. Right, thirty, forty. You know, the intention to to create opportunities for uh, for affordable housing, uh, opportunity to um, to own homes, and now the the conversation has become ever so more complex with this added layer of of, of thinking about community and social justice justice, especially in, in a city like Toronto. This has been really interesting, and I, I really appreciate your time to educate me more about what Habitat uh, does, and especially it's, it's great that we're able to get this podcast released on, uh, which will be October 5th, World Habitat Day. And Jeremy, thanks so much for the opportunity and uh, looking forward to, to keeping track on uh, Electric Cities and all the great conversations to be had. Thanks so much, Ian.